We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. And tonight is quite simple as we'll be looking back at the year that was and my guests will be choosing some of their top news stories from here in Taiwan of 2021. So Ross, let's change it around a bit this year and let's begin with, begin with number one. What was your biggest, most interesting, amazing story that grabbed you from the headlines and smacked you in the face this year? Well, I can't say that any any news item actually smacked me in the face, but uh, uh, I'll just take one from the last few weeks, which is the the Wang Li Hong divorce. And the reason why uh, I'm taking the easy way out and picking it because uh, not just because it was in the news in the last few weeks, but it, it does have elements of of so much of of the things that we often talk about here on on the show. Uh, there's, you know, there's a significant China element because Wang Li Hong has made most of his uh, money, to be frank, in China in recent years. And, and there's this tension uh, here in Taiwan society about uh, business people, entertainers. Uh, you know, we export to China. It's still Taiwan's most important market. So you have that significant China element. There's the internet element because his ex-wife uh, brought all these allegations in, in social media posts. Then there's the quarantine element because when this story blew up in the news when his ex-wife posted these things on the internet. It was it was literally hours before Wang Li Hong was flying back from China to Taiwan and had to go into quarantine. And of course the, the quarantine rules have, have changed several times. They've been more strict. Quarantine at home, you know, it's it's changed back and forth. Um, but when, when Wang Li Hong landed, he had to go to quarantine. And, and maybe, Gavin, I'm, I'm just a bit biased towards this story because I'm a lawyer as well. So there's also the interesting legal aspects. And then for the foreign audience here, you know, who makes up a lot of our audience here at ICRT, uh, of course, there's the uh, the dual nationality aspect of some of the parties involved in, in this situation, which creates some interesting issues when uh, there, there's a divorce of, of dual nationals or, or foreigners in Taiwan. So, Brian, did the Mando Pop Divorce of the Year grab you? Uh, it was definitely interesting. I mean, that it blanketed news coverage so much, and it was the headline that featured on all the websites for, for quite a while, for weeks on end. Uh, so I think that there occasionally are these stories that break on the news and really grip the media, and this one was especially intense, actually. Uh, and so that is something even now the media is kind of not letting go. And I think part of it is because of the era, that he is a figure that's established and well-known. Um, it took place on the, the heels of the Gaotiaru scandal as well, which involved domestic abuse. And so that centers some of these issues regarding abuse. Um, and we live in the era of Me Too, and, and when a lot of these allegations are occurring online in these online spaces uh, and among entertainers, and this is how, sometimes how that happens. Um, it so enveloped the nation that the Liberty Times, the most widely read newspaper in the world, or, sorry, in Taiwan. <laughs> bit, of an ex- bit of an exaggeration there, Brian. <laughs> yes, uh, I meant to say Taiwan. Uh, was posting updates just like, well, you know, Wang Li Hong's awake now, and so he has another update. And being very fatigious about it in terms of how fixated people were on the story. And so, yeah, I think it is it is quite significant in that sense. And it's interesting that Brian mentioned you know, it came on the heels of the, the Gao Jiayu domestic abuse uh, uh, matter, which you know, 
truly horrible, which also came on the heels of, of the, the other big celebrity divorce in, in the, the fourth quarter of this year, which was the, the Dias and, and her husband, who, again, it was from China. So it was another China-Taiwan um, entertainment slash legal <laughs> divorce. And again, you know, so much of it played out on the Internet with with all their friends piling in from from different perspectives. And unfortunately, when a divorce happens, you got to pick a side as well. Mm. And of course, me and Ross were talking off air before when this happened. We were saying, maybe, do you think it will go away if they both go back to America? Yeah, that's a question. Uh, that is a question if this will actually go away. But I think that his fame does extend to America, particularly maybe not among Amer- white mainstream kind of culture, but certainly among Chinese Americans and Chinese Americans. And so I do think that there's quite a lot of English language attention to this incident from such people who grow up listening to Wang Lihong. And that is quite interesting as well. I mean, he is also a Chinese American. I mean, speaking as one myself, I kept getting much more scrutiny on my typos in, in, in texts in Chinese after his typos in those texts. And everyone was kind of making fun of him for that. So that happened. Try try sending him an English bride. Yes, uh, that, stay, that's stay also. in your safe lane. <laughs> and of course, Ross, do you think we'll see Wang Li Hong popping back to China in the new year, or do you think possibly the allegations of prostitution might keep him away from the country? This is another very uh, pertinent question because uh, over in China, over the course of 2021, there was this crackdown um, on the internet broadly. So. Uh, you know, the use of information uh, by companies, whether it was Didi Chuxing or, or some of the other big platforms, whether they're 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 just uh, news platforms or, or platforms people use for for text chatting, micro messaging, uh, purchasing, uh, uh, online shopping, etc. Uh, and, and the entertainment world in China has come under scrutiny from the, from the authorities there with lots of new rules, uh, and uh, that that again that that does affect the people from Taiwan who make their fortune uh, selling themselves, whether selling their music or acting or doing advertising, and they make a lot of money from, from uh, you know, promoting products. Um, so yeah, it's a great question, Gavin. And you know, we just don't know the answer whether or not he'll have a, a, a long-term blacklist, and which has happened to a number of Taiwan entertainers, sometimes because of something they say politically and sometimes because of a scandal that they're involved in. Uh, and it does uh, factor into you know, China-Taiwan relations and, and what the trajectory is, at least in the short term, it looks like he's going to be blacklisted. And Brian, what was your top story, the one that grabbed you if it could grab you at all? Yeah, I guess I would say it's the coronavirus. I mean, it's not actually the most particular or exciting story, but it is an incident that went on for six months in Taiwan. And so people were so glued to the uh, Central Epidemic Command Center daily briefings every day at 2 p.m. And I was doing updates on this for like 120 days on end. And so that did consume a great part of my year. And I think uh, it does touch on a lot of these other issues and the other stories that are brought up this year. Uh, politics, it became a, a object of infighting between the KMT and the DPP, uh, the usual pan-green versus pan-blue contestation. Uh, then you actually have the question of Taiwan's relation to the world uh, regarding, for example, vaccine donations from other parts of the world, uh, shows of support, calling on the U.S. or Japan or these uh, other allies and, and the, the kind of aid they provided. Uh, that also shows strengthening relations between Taiwan and these countries, which matters for uh, national security, geopolitics, etc. And so uh, in that sense, too, because Taiwan had this reputation as being COVID-free for so long, this also affects Taiwan's international prestige. Would this, for example, be viewed as the Italian administration having overplayed its hand, having failed to, for example, order vaccines? 
scenes and, and so forth and leading to the situation. That kind of overriding or covering up this reputation for, for maintaining Kavan as COVID-free. And so eventually things were under control. Things are back to normal now, more or less, to some extent. Uh, but even then, just, this is still something that is fought over. And I think that, for example, a lot of the issues that were brought up and became things that were fought over during this, this uh, outbreak, such as vaccines or uh, border control policies, etc., are still going to be coming up as stories in the next year. And they'll still be fought over between the DPP and the KMT. Of course, you were actually in the belly of the beast in Taipei's Wanhua district looking out your apartment window for most of this. That's right. And so I was uh, living across from all these tea parlors where these outbreaks first broke out. And I was also, it was also my misfortune to live very close to the, the hospital in the area. And so I was hearing ambulances basically 24-7. And so I'm by the hardest area and also next to the hospital that is, you know, these people are being brought towards. Uh, and so that was, that was a, it was quite hard to sleep then, actually. It was about 24 hours of just ambulance sirens all around. Although that is what people experience in many parts of the world for like years on end now. And, and Taiwan is just joining the club in that sense. And Ross, of course, Brian, they're talking about the coronavirus, and of course, he doesn't want to eat instant noodles anymore for a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, Brian, uh, you know, you're you're still looking good and healthy, so standing <laughs> the, the instant noodles, which it's the uh, preservatives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're well preserved, young man. Uh, yeah, there, there's there's so many different aspects to COVID nineteen events here in Taiwan over the course of 2021. And you know we're still wearing masks here in the ICRT studio, which you know, may or may not be medically justified. Um, and, and we see companies, schools are still struggling with what should be the right thing we do because nobody wants to get it wrong, right? And we see that from the government. So you know, as we transition from 2021 to 2022, that that, that that's this conservatism. Yeah, I, 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 that's what I'll call it. Uh, where the government uh, is really reluctant to get it wrong. And we see that with typhoon days, for example. You know, Gavin, when you and I first got to Taiwan 10,000 years ago, uh, government was reluctant to declare a typhoon day, right? They were afraid the business leaders would, would come down on them for, for losing a day of manufacturing as if it would destroy the economy. But, you know, th those industrial bosses, that's how they are. Uh, but, but nowadays, you know, they rush to declare a typhoon day because they don't want to get it wrong because now they have to face the voters, unlike in the pre-democracy era, I guess. Uh, but uh, we see that with, with, with COVID and, and, and the reluctance to do away with uh, the very tight entry restrictions. And, and this played out before the, the Omicron variant. And, and, you know, to be fair to the government of Taiwan, I mean, other governments around around the region, around the world imposed new travel restrictions where they slowed down on what had been a, a plan to ease travel restrictions uh, in the last six weeks of this year and heading into January. And, and again, we, we see that with the government here. So they, they want to maintain the, the strict uh, rules on non-resident entry into Taiwan. So, of course, citizens and, and foreign residents like us can, can enter the country subject to quarantine, and, but it's still very difficult for non-residents uh, to enter unless you're a VIP or a parliamentarian from Europe or, or a congressperson from the United States, in, in which case you magically don't need to quarantine, uh, which I think is a whole, a whole lot of silliness. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, mask rules, as I say, you know, do you need to wear the mask in this venue or that venue? Uh, do, do, we, do we have to scan our QR code in this place or that place or how many different places, you know, just to come up and to an office. Sometimes you're scanning it, you know, multiple times downstairs, and then once you get upstairs to to the specific location. So, Taiwan is still struggling with this, and then there's there's going to be some more struggles upcoming, such as uh, you know, booster booster shots, whether or not that's necessary. Are we going to mix, do some mix and match uh, from the menu 
uh, you know, people who got Medigen or, or one of the others, or they're, you know, they're going to mix and match. Uh, and, and then the the acceptance of Taiwan's um, documentation, which is something you know, we've talked about many times over the course of this year, that Taiwan will need to negotiate that with other countries, uh, whether it's Medigen or people took one of the received one of the vac vaccines that are used in other places and the the digital or, or paper proof that Taiwan issues while other countries accept that whether for entry or um, if, if they have uh, vaccine passport rules to enter restaurants and stores etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, so there's still much work to be done which is it's related to whether or not there's COVID cases in Taiwan, but uh, you know, at some level, it's it's not necessarily related to that. It's more you know, this kind of bureaucratic stuff that still needs to be uh, worked out. So, Brian, Ross was talking about looking ahead there. Of course, another issue the government is facing is like, is it going to make it mandatory for people to prove they've been vaccinated before they go to certain offices in certain types of jobs? Mm, yeah, that's right. And so it's a question, will there be the introduction of vaccine passports? And I think that there will be some backlash against the Tsai administration from some quarter of society if they do that, no matter what happens, uh, while there'll be others that view this as a necessary measure. Because I think the concern then is that vaccination rates may have slowed, that they're already around like 80% now for first dose vaccination, but some demographics may be unwilling to get vaccinated, or it might be harder to push them to get boosters and so forth. And so that might be rolled out in the future. I think particularly Taiwan will be evaluating uh, what is done abroad in terms of what the uh, Central Epidemic Command Center has done. Oftentimes it is justified on what they're doing abroad and so using these measures for Taiwan. And so I think that kind of rhetoric will be used to deploy uh, this politically. Um, but that might happen. That might happen. Ross, having to prove you've been vaccinated to get into certain buildings, do certain jobs. Well, the government is already within, within its existing authority, uh, has already required that for certain jobs or they said you, you can't come to work if you don't have it so it's not a it's not a vaccine mandate per se but but it's it's again using uh executive authority that the government has under existing laws and regulations saying if you work in certain industries you cannot go to work if you don't have a vaccine so it's it's a it's a mandate light lit uh and uh, we'll probably see more of that and if necessary then they'll go to the legislature and 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 uh uh, obtain additional authority if if uh, they they feel that it, existing laws and regulations don't don't uh, provide a basis to require uh, vaccine proof. But if that's the trend uh, around the world, then given as I said earlier the the conservative approach that we see here, uh, I, I would expect um, yeah that, it's, that we're going to have to show proof of vaccination to enter uh, venues, uh, you know, could start with schools and then uh, expand out to additional places. But that certainly seems likely going forward. And Ross, what was your sort of what favourite but most eye-catching domestic political news of this year that didn't involve the coronavirus or Wan Li Hong? <laughs> well, I, I, the, it's easy to say they're the referendums, but I'm going to I'm going to pick the uh, the recalls and the by-elections because it, it, it's a story that's going to continue in the first few weeks of January for sure, because there's another another recall and by and a by-election coming up. Uh, it could be a trend going forward, given the the relatively low barrier to to bring about a recall. I, mean, I would hope that recalls within you know, two years of the next legislative election it would be viewed as a waste of time. Uh, but this does seem to be the trend, uh, and. 
I, I think it's too easy to say it's done for malicious purposes. Uh, I, I'd rather people say it's just a waste of time. We could vote the person out if we don't like them. It, it seems a bit uh, like the easy way out just to say, oh, the other side. Because this is like so many other political issues in Taiwan. When it's your person who's who's the victim of this, then you say, oh, the other side is being malicious. right? But, but, but if you're on the side of trying to uh, get rid of the other person that you say, well, they're doing a terrible job as a city councilor or a legislator or as a, a municipal leader, a mayor or a county executive. Uh, so both parties, the KMT and uh, the Guomindang and the Minjindang DPP, they're going to be on both sides of this issue going forward. Uh, unfortunately, it's probably going to be the trend. So after the 2022 local election, we should expect in the next four years after that, there'll be a bunch of city councilors or county councilors who become the target of uh, uh, recall. And uh, after the legislative election in 2024, we'll see more legislators who get targeted for a recall as well. So uh, we'll probably have not just referendum mayhem every two years, but we'll probably have uh, recall mayhem on a regular basis here in Taiwan. Yeah, we had a referendum about a referendum. Recalls for people who have been recalled and taken their jobs, Brian, in future. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to continue. I think it's uh, interesting because recalls and referendums, I mean, the recalls are framed as referendums on the DPP's governance by the KMT. And so I think this is the strategy that's taken there. And so sometimes what you'll have happen, for example, targeting, uh, for example, Freddie Lim, who's up for recall on January 9th, or Huang Jie, who survived her recall, is that then you'll attempt to connect these candidates, even if they're independents or have not taken strong stances on this issue, to stances of the Tsai administration. So Freddie, for example, uh, some of the advertising I've been getting in Wanghua and in the mail and so forth is claiming that he was support of American pork. And so that's why he should be voted against. And so this recall, this referendum was just had, but these issues kind of come back alive actually through this recall as a vehicle for that. And so I think these things are actually deeply interlinked. I think that this is will be the pattern, just a lot of contentious elections that will be used as benchmarks on, on politics or approval ratings and so forth. A waste of public money, as Ross argued, Brian. Uh, I think it may be the case. I think it really depends. But also the interesting fact is that Although I think the pan-green camp lowered the benchmarks for this in the hopes that this would even the playing field sometimes in terms of resources, if you do have more resources in the area, your mobilization capacity is stronger to push for recalls. So that's what's going to happen. The interesting thing here is, you know, it's not just that that the DPP lowers lowered the barriers mm. using their legislative majority, but they they had a very successful recall from a DPP perspective when they they got they recalled successfully recalled Han Guoyu in, in Gaoxiao. Uh, so, like referendums or some other things, you have to be careful what what you wish for when, when you uh, toy with uh, the legal requirements uh, for what might seem like a short term benefit. Then you you have to spend time defending these, right? So Freddie Lim, the guy's been elected twice. You know, you'd think like like a recall would have no chance, but the barrier was lowered. So people who don't like Freddie Lim, you know, mostly Guomindang and I guess maybe some Minjongdang TPP, America's party people, uh, they, they were able to meet the, the low barrier. And now uh, Freddie Lim and the DPP have to mobilize resources to defend against this. So I mean, from that perspective, it's certainly a waste of time. From the fact that he was elected twice, uh, beating you know, someone who had represented the district and incumbent previously. It seems like the voters in the district like him in any way. We're only two years away from the election, so why are we doing this? But, but the DPP has to take some of the blame. Uh, but they'll, they'll use it for their own advantage 
what it's convenient for them, whether it was Hong Yu uh, or in subsequent uh, uh, recall attempts against legislators or city councilors or municipal leaders that the DPP wants to target. Uh, so that's why I said earlier, we're going to have some reference, I'm sorry, recall mayhem in years going forward. Yeah, I think it's absolutely that's the case. Um, I think particularly interesting is the fact that a lot of these recall campaigns targeting particularly younger progressive uh, legislators or city councillors began after the Angkor recall, the successful recall, because of the fact that they had taken strong stances opposing him. So I think we're going to have a pattern of recalls leading to other recalls potentially. And so a big recall against someone like a mayor that was successful might lead to recalls against people at a lower political level, and that might happen. And so far, this has been more from the pan-blue camp. But I think particularly it'll be interesting when the DPP decides to do this and to target specific KMT legislators as part of recalls, because I think this will also happen. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and moving on now as we look at the year that was. Brian, let's look at, listen to your um, society story of 2021. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, one of the interesting issues that has come up, for example, already flagged, and we talked about Wang Nihong briefly, is the issue of abuse against women, uh, but also sexual harassment in online spaces. And so I think the deepfake story is quite interesting, that no less than Tsai would, would comment on this. And so this took place after a YouTube a YouTuber, Xiaoyu, was arrested for running a telegram ring for creating deepfake videos of public figures such as Gao Jiayu or Huang Jie or uh, various YouTubers such as Zemi Ding. And so Zemi Ding, who is a YouTuber, made a video, for example, just actually going into this this Telegram group and investigating and finding how this was going on. And this involves sometimes taking commissions even to manufacture videos of, uh, for example, people's exes uh, or political figures that people were wanted to see sex videos of and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, this raises the question then of particularly are current laws enough to deal with this in an age in which so much of this is occurring through social media. And this has been labeled sometimes Taiwan's version of the Nth Room incident in South Korea. And so I think this raises a lot of interesting questions regarding, uh, we talked about, for example, issues of abuse uh, with Gao Jiayu or Wang Lihong and so forth. But this takes place on online spaces and is hard to regulate. There's a question, are existing laws enough to deal with this at present? Um, and this, in this incident, it was surprising that the person who was behind this ring turned out to be another public figure. Uh, but again, it was large enough as an incident that Taiwan comment on this. And Gao Jiayu, for example, I think to her credit, after the domestic abuse incident, sought to try to redirect some of the attention she was getting then towards this broader issue. And so this has been commented on by both political camps, but it's a question now, will be done to take, to take uh, measures against this, or if that can even happen, because so much activity occurs online and just pops up and it's hard to really regulate or take account of. And of course, Ross, the government did have a knee-jerk reaction to that, that being they said, we're going to change the laws. But of course, Brian pointed out that might not be as easy as some might think. Well, the, it is the typical reaction here. Then the sad thing is the laws that get, get written are... Uh, they think it's a great solution, as as you've been saying, and often it's not, right? It, it, they wind up writing a law that says, if you make a deep fake of a person, you will be fined uh, a minimum of X thousand NT up to a maximum. It's it's simple, a simplistic uh, approach just, just to get some short-term political PR, good PR, say, oh, we're doing something. Uh, about it. You know, the weird thing here is you know, this has existed 
for a long time, you know, ever since you know, the internet has been around or ever since uh, various kinds of software have been around, deep fakes have been ex- have existed. It's not something it's not something new. Yeah, sure, software continually improves over time, uh, but but uh, making deep fakes of of celebrities or politicians whether in Taiwan or elsewhere it's not a new problem. It just, you know, for various reasons, blew up in the news here in, in Taiwan this year. And uh, unfortunately, it, it took up a lot of public discussion as well. I mean, maybe from one perspective, uh, it didn't really need that much discussion or didn't need the, the president uh, personally commenting on it. And, uh, as we often say on, on the show, Gavin, uh, he arguably existing laws were good enough, right? So instead of, oh, we got to write new laws, you know, just just use the existing laws uh, that arguably would have uh, been sufficient to prosecute uh, people who, who you know, were stealing others' images, for example. Of course, when we talked about this on the show, the guest at the time, he pointed out, Brian, that what would happen if he, he films his one of his kids and he makes a deep fake jokey video of them, maybe dancing with the wiggles, and one day they, t- they take offense at that? Yeah, that is a question, actually. It's been brought up sometimes with social media. What happens when you make a account for your kid, for example, and then your kid is not happy about it years later? I don't think the kids that have grown up in the age of social media are necessarily old enough to have become any particular uh, incident yet. But it's a question if that'll happen. Um, so I think also what's interesting is because there's also the disinformation angle of this, that a lot of the discussion of deep fakes is in the frame of sexual harassment or uh, sex videos and, and so forth. But there's also the concern then that disinformation be circulated about political leaders using this. And so political leaders will issue a disavowal, but sometimes, as with, I think, misinformation, disinformation in general, that will travel faster than the disavowal or the clarification of what actually happened. And so that does raise these kind of interesting questions. But I think actually a lot of this is not actually new either, uh, because of the fact that Taiwan has a very rapacious media culture that frequently sexualizes particularly female subjects. And so I don't think these are necessarily new issues either. Uh, we have the Apple Daily with pictures, for example, of people and not really blurring out their faces very well, and in which there are a lot of identifying details. Uh, I think that's already an issue. And so I think that that is a matter of concern. Um, and sometimes it's public figures that are being targeted with deep fake technology. But a lot of these issues with, I think, Thomas media culture does protect people with less recourse to defend themselves, actually, who are not in the public eye so often. I, I just want to say very clearly here that that if uh, Brian makes this kind of uh, deep fake video of his own children, um, when he does have children. And then decades later, the children want to take legal action against against Brian. I'll represent those children pro bono. I'm going to come after you, Brian. And I was actually going to ask you to put on your lawyer's hat here because, Ross, I mean, what what, what are the legal record? If I make a video of you, it's, it's humorous. It's not derogatory. It's humorous, but you take offense. What is your recall to stop the video from being distributed, to have me erase the video, or even to take me to civil court and get a load of money off me? Well, that goes to the issue that, that, that I mentioned earlier, that, that they'll try to write a law that, that will basically say exactly what you just described, right? If a person makes a video of another without their permission, and you could be a celebrity, Gavin, you are, you're a public figure, right? So that, that's another factor here as well. I mean, tr- typically, in, 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 at least in the you know, normal kind of democracies, uh, public figures are, uh, you know, they're, they're a target for, for not, not, not defamation, but, but, you know, there is some space uh, to, to lampoon public mm. figures, right? Uh, it, you're, you're supposed to be allowed to do that. It, it, your, your life as a public figure is, is uh, open to some public conversation. And also here in Taiwan, traditionally, even uh, defamation or libel, the damages are, are, are pretty small. Even if you you can successfully bring a case here in Taiwan, you know, Gavin, if I if I 
uh, make some ridiculous accusation against you. And, and, you know, I go to another radio station and I say something that's completely false and you actually take action against me and you win. You're not going to win a lot of money in Taiwan. The damages are pretty, pretty small. And Brian, do you think the damages should be higher? That's uh, a question because I think that somebody's just increasing these punitive measures do not deter this kind of behavior. And I think that is, as Ross pointed out, generally the pattern in Taiwan that when there's some kind of new crime or, or some series of incidents happens, the government increases the penalties as though this will be a solution to satisfy this political uh, need to do act, take action to do something. But it doesn't actually get at the root of the problem. And so that's the question, I think, for me regarding the story. And Ross, um, international politics, mate, where did that take us this year? Well, we had a new president in the United States. You may have heard about that, <laughs> Gavin, uh, which obviously has a effect on global politics, global global economics, pandemic management, and you know, going into the U.S. election a little over a year ago. Clearly, the preference of uh, the government in Taiwan—they'll deny it—but we know their preference was for for. Trump to be reelected. And there were concerns about Biden being soft on China. So what has the Biden administration done over, over its first 10, 11 months? Well, they've tried to re-energize or, or, or restart some of the relationships with traditional U.S. allies like France, for example. And then they screwed that up with the AUKUS deal. <laughs> and now they're trying to fix that. Uh, NATO, European Union, some of the targets of criticism by President Trump himself or the Trump administration. You know, they say they're back in Asia, but I, I don't think it's it's accurate to say the Trump administration wasn't in Asia. It's, it's a different way of going about things and certainly a different speaking style. Obviously, Japan had a very strong relationship uh, under, uh, under uh, former Prime Minister uh, Abe Shinzo, had a great relationship with President Trump. The Biden administration is trying to maintain that. Uh, trying to maintain the relationship with Australia. Again, there, there's the AUKUS deal. Support for Taiwan. Uh, trying to maintain a lot of the things the Trump administration did, but that's the perfect example of, of how to distinguish the Trump administration from the Biden administration foreign policy. The trajectory or the speed of things that the Trump administration was doing specifically with regard to China, that has not been maintained by the Biden administration. So even if they haven't rolled back some of the initiatives of the Trump administration, such as the tariffs and the, the trade war, the number of new initiatives that come out from the Biden administration are somewhat slow. So a lot of talk, and that, that's a typical kind of progressive liberal way of doing things and all that. Biden administration is uh, progressive and liberal. So they like to talk. They like to talk with the European Union. They like to talk with the UK and France and Germany and Italy and the traditional US friends. Uh, but but we don't see that speed of new initiatives with regard to China that we saw in, in, in the final two years of the Trump administration. And as of now, I, I, don't, I don't think we should be expecting the speed to pick up. I think it will be more a lot of talk. And then the periodic announcement of maybe some new sanctions against officials in China who are involved in, in policy. Uh, there's the new legislation that, that was just uh, signed into law with regard to uh, products that come from Xinjiang. But but the initiative came from Congress more than it more so than it came from the Biden administration. So when, when it comes to China policy, I, I think we'll again we'll see a lot of talk, some tough talk. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of criticism that the action or the pace of action is simply too slow. 
And Brian, of course, there's been some faux pas this year by several members of the Biden administration, one being Joe Biden saying one thing and then one of his other lowly people coming out and saying, oh, he didn't quite mean that. Mm, yeah. So I think this has happened multiple times with Biden. Is It can be quite confusing that he will say something that seems supportive of Taiwan or maybe having agreements with China where none exists, and then the White House will have to walk it back. So I think what there is continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is the tendency of both presidents to venture off script with their comments. Uh, and so with the Biden administration, it is usually walked back. There's the denial. Whereas the Trump, you could see some flip-flop suddenly, suddenly happen. Uh, but then these question is still asking, does this represent a shift in U.S. policy? And I think particularly what's interesting is under the Biden administration, you have a lot of commentators or people uh, just involved in uh, discussing this as an expert uh, debating on, on the strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity, which is the preferable policy. Does it still hold? And you do have a lot of popular discourse claiming that the U.S. is increasingly moving towards strategic clarity. Whether that's the case or not is another question entirely, but that is at the very least claimed in discourse that maybe the U.S. is not doing that. And so this has been an interesting phenomenon to watch, and I think Taiwan does its eye very uh, keenly set on this, uh, watching what the Biden administration does. Uh, because, uh, yeah, there was a lot of concern when it took power as to whether it would maintain the Trump administration's stances or if it would break from them, uh, particularly regarding the perception in Taiwan that democratic administrations are softer on China. And Brian, what about China? Cross-strait ties this year, cross-strait relations. Were there any relations this year? Well, not really, but there are a lot of military threats. And so I think that is quite the interesting thing, because this is not actually new or particular this year either, in that Chinese military threats, uh, air incursions specifically, have increased to near daily on some occasions. But there is much more international awareness of this after Chinese National Day on October 1st, in which after the first four days after that, there was 150 Chinese planes. And this was like 25% or 20% of the total amount of air incursions that year. And so this has dramatically increased. And there's a pattern of tit-for-tat escalation between the U.S. and China at times. Uh, but I think that that is, that is the main thing. And, and China just continues military threats, which are dialed back sometimes when negotiating with the U.S., but are likely to continue. And of course, Ross, there are analysts that say the number of incursions by Chinese military aircraft into Taiwan's air defense identification zones is likely to pick up this year. Well, more likely, China will do something similar to what it did in 2021, which is they'll, they'll pick a period of time when suddenly there, the number of, of aircraft involved are greater uh, than that. That could last for a few days. And then they revert back to a smaller number uh, of aircraft, periodically introduce new aircraft or, or new types of formations, uh, you know, a mix of, of aircraft types with different types of capabilities. And that's what we saw uh, in recent months. So we'll probably see more of that. We, it, sometimes it'll be in response to you know, a visit uh, by a foreign dignitary. Uh, for example, there, there's another congressional delegation from the U.S. that plans to visit in January. So, you know, that might be an opportunity <laughs> for, for China to do this again. Um, maybe there'll be more European VIPs that visit in, in 2022 uh, as well. Uh, but we knew this would happen. What I mean is you know, we knew from the moment President Tsai was inaugurated in May 2016 that the military pressure on Taiwan would increase. And we knew that from the moment she was reelected. And uh, it's, up to, it's up to Taiwan to prepare accordingly. And the defense budget has been increased. There was a, a supplemental budget, which was recently approved as well. Uh, so the, the money is increasing. The investment in hardware is increasing. Uh, but uh, we don't really see, I think, the commitment broadly in society to this, uh, and maybe some people are going to be angry at me for saying that, but recruitment and retention is still a problem 
for the military. And uh, for those for those foreign commentators, you know, people outside Taiwan who are listening to the show, I also have a message for you because I've seen this a lot. You know, people say, well, everyone in Taiwan was panicking in October. <laughs> well, uh, Josh Rogan in the Washington Post, I hope you're listening because you wrote that recently. Uh, and uh, no, people weren't panicking. I mean, it was, it was, of course, it was in the news here. Uh, and there was discussion on political talk shows about it and comments or statements, criticism from the relevant government officials, whether the presidential office or Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the Ministry of National Defense. But there was no, there was no panic here. I'm not saying that as, as a criticism per se. I'm saying it more as an observation. And if uh, people here want to be serious about defense, uh, then you know, society as a whole, and when I say as a whole, I, I, I mean not just the public, uh, people who might be eligible for the new reservist system, which is going to come online and, and will affect a, a greater number of, of eligible uh, men primarily, uh, uh, business leaders, are they into this as well? Are they supportive of, of uh, national defense? Uh, politicians, and not just the DPP, but the other parties as well. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, then that, that remains an ongoing concern. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so I think that's the interesting thing to note about these air incursions, that international headlines are something blaring about this. They have noticed these military threats directed at Taiwan for decades, really, for the first time, and, and they have increased. And this is historic, but people are not panicking and people are not phased and life goes on as normal. And I think that is what is missed in a lot of international commentary. And I think that this is actually a dangerous phenomenon, playing up fear in Taiwan, as though there were fear in Taiwan, or that people are terrified of invasion, that just creates an inaccurate perception of the state of affairs, and that also leads to incorrectness making from people in America, and et cetera. So I think what is interesting is, yeah, absolutely, because there will be the question then asked, particularly from the US, which is often called for Taiwan to increase its military budget or sort out the issues with recruitment and retention and so forth, uh, can you use this as motivation to do that? Because people are afraid of invasion now, right? Unfortunately, people are not too concerned about it. And so for the US, when pushing for this, that is not going to happen. Uh, and I think that in that regard, it is quite interesting too, because the flip side is, if China does want Taiwan demoralized and afraid and not willing to resist true military threats, that is also not working because people are, are often more concerned with celebrity gossip and Wang Lihong and things like that. And it was very amusing for me watching the headlines, the front page headlines appear about these air incursions, and then these just gradually get swallowed up by entertainment news. Of course, one could argue, Brian, that the the fact that the, these headlines in international media outlets about a screaming war in the Taiwan Straits actually began when the coronavirus had actually died down somewhat in the West, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the thing about media discourse is that often it is commercial in nature. And sometimes you do want headlines that drive up clicks and engagement, even if that is not an accurate reflection of reality. And so I think that, that is something that happens whether in Taiwan, internationally or elsewhere. And I think that a lot of the concerns or the way in which Taiwan is framed in international media really returns to their more domestic concerns. And so then you only have discussion of Taiwan in terms of Beijing being provoked or rising tensions in the Taiwan Straits and not actually being attentive to how people on the ground here in Taiwan are, are thinking about the situation. Maybe uh, we should also keep in mind that everything we say might be a move that will anger Beijing, right? That, that frequent yeah. <laughs> uh, phraseology that shows up. You know, but Brian was just talking about the, the international media coverage. Uh, so an interesting issue that came up, or there's more and more of that uh, that I've observed, is that people in China, uh, they're 
they are increasingly nationalistic. And uh, the, I'm bringing this up because it goes to what we were just talking about and some of the things that Brian mentioned where people here are not panicking. That's good. We don't want people to panic. Uh, but uh, they, they go about their business. They, as Brian said, they return to reading the entertainment news. Whereas in China, an increasing number of people, uh, even if they're not communists, you know, not every individual out of 1.4 billion people is a, is a communist, but they certainly are supportive or increasing number of people are certainly supportive of their government when it comes to issues of nationalism, whether that's control of Hong Kong, uh, the measures to control Xinjiang and, and Tibet, and increasingly uh, the potential for military action against Taiwan. Uh, that's another thing. Yeah, I, I often criticize the foreign experts about because they'll say, oh, China will never do this because it will be too risky, domestic backlash. People don't want their children to die in a war. I, I disagree with that. The, the, the nationalism that we see um, online uh, by, by netizens in China or if for those of us who have opportunity to speak to and interact with people in China – uh, it, it, it's growing and we don't really see enough of that here in Taiwan. Again, the most specific manifestation being uh, recruitment or retention in the military and this quick return to, to let's read about the celebrity news. But do you think, Brian, do you think people in Taiwan actually want to be nationalistic, having sort of most of them been brought up with a nationalistic government? Yeah, so I think that's one of the interesting things about particularly uh, military recruitment and re retention is that I think for a lot of people, they might not be interested in it because it's a, viewed as a legacy of authoritarianism or affiliated with the KMT. But I think for a lot of people, they just prefer not wanting war. And so joining the military is, why would you join the military? You don't want war. And so I think sometimes the low interest in the military is maybe related to just hoping for maintaining the status quo. I mean, that's not a hypothesis I can prove or disprove. But I think that sometimes the attitudes are that you don't want war, so you don't want to join the military, which... I think that, you know, there's the view, it might be even harder for the government to sell the view that if you don't want war, you might need a stronger military. Uh, I think that actually that viewpoint is maybe counterintuitive to how some members of the public perceive things. So that was the serious stuff. And Ross, what was your doofy, stupid, inane story from here in Taiwan of 2021? When Brian tweeted a remark about white people and their fever dreams about Asia. Oh, Brian, there you go. You can you can have a shot back at that, I think. Oh, I mean, just, you know, there are a lot of people who have very bizarre perceptions of Taiwan. I mean, for example, you have Noah Smith on Bloomberg claiming Taiwan is a civilization. And then... I have to interrupt because, Brian, thank you for saying that because that, that is the greatest laugh I've heard from Gavin in so long. So thank you so much, Brian, for, for prompting a laugh from Gavin. Yeah, so I think it's one of the things that, you know, then Taiwan is framed as this idealistic utopia, uh, which just you project your fantasies onto in that case. Uh, with Noah, it was that. And I was like, well, you know, Taiwan meets none of the criteria for civilization. Uh, or you have these fear-mongering about Taiwan. It's a, where there's when World War III is going to break out. The U.S. and China are on the verge of nuclear war over Taiwan, which is not the case. And so I think that is that is quite an issue. And I think this is prevalent uh, actually among all ranges of the political spectrum, left, right, altogether. And Brian, what was your doofy inane story of the year? I mean, Ross does tweet. You know that, didn't you? Yeah, I'm aware of that. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was probably the salmon chaos for me. Just all these people changing their names to have salmon in their names so they can get free sushi. Uh, I think that's uh, one of these particularly Taiwanese stories because I think people oftentimes go to inane lengths to save a little bit of money. I mean, you see these toilet paper, for example, uh, stampedes, for example, when there's a little bit of prices being raised. Uh, but that also reflects, I think, just that young people, in many cases, are actually really not having a lot of money. And so this seems like a quick and easy way to get some free food and maybe have a laugh. And so people go for this. Do you think it was more about getting free food than just people having a bit of a laugh? I think it was a combination of them. 
But I mean, some people end up stuck with his name. <laughs> he's the man who's now. How many how many characters does that name have in it? I think there was one that was like 30, 40 characters. I think it's like the longest name in, in I think in on record. I think for free sushi. Ross, did you change your name for free sushi this year? Uh, no, I'm 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 in a non-sushi eating phase of my life right now. <laughs> Uh, so it didn't really apply to me. Uh, it did seem rather bizarre, but in a way, uh, and I apologize for returning to a more serious note, it's apropos for so much of what we discussed on this program. You know, we talked about changing the, the law on deep fakes. If you make a deep fake, you will be prosecuted. Uh, another aspect of that is Taiwan has become such a great democracy. We say it's easy to recall your your elected representatives, and it's easy to change your name. Right? You, you go to you go to go go to a a window and sign a form and write down whatever ridiculous name you want to write, and and then you can go back the next day after you got your discounted sushi and change it back. Uh, regardless of what a waste of societal resources this is, uh, it, it's similar to the the discussion we had today about people not paying attention or not wanting to pay attention to the serious national security risks and uh, instead wanting to return to the entertainment news. And this is just, it's similar to that, that you know, people really will spend time and effort on something like that just to save a very, very small amount of money. And of course, it did push Taiwan into the international headlines, Brian. Uh, yeah, so I think it is, uh, I think it was a weird year in which Taiwan entered international headlines for a number of bizarre reasons. Uh, the Salmon Chaos was one. My other option for the story was the Ever Given story with the container ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal and then clogging up shipping. And that also puts Taiwan in the spotlight in a very strange way. And so that, that also happened. But Ross, as I'm sure you're going to inform me, the ship wasn't actually being driven by a Taiwanese company at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the name Evergreen did get into the news, uh, but yeah, the, sh the nature of how shipping works. Mm. Yeah, the, the connections to Taiwan were, were somewhat tangential. Uh, but uh, to the point that, that Brian and, and, and you have made, Gavid, uh, this sort of, yeah, I apologize for being serious again, but it's kind of like that economist front page story, right, about the, mm. the most dangerous place in the world, as if nobody had ever said that about Taiwan, China before, right? I mean, this is certainly not not uh, original. Uh, Taiwan did get in the news for a number of, of, of more positive reasons. It did have the, the surprisingly good performance at, at the Olympics, and that generated some positive media coverage. The, the sympathy uh, from Europe, Lithuania most notably, uh, but other European countries as well. The, the low, relatively low number of, of COVID cases that Taiwan was able to maintain, notwithstanding the events in, in May and June when there was a few weeks when there were more cases and unfortunately more deaths. Uh, and then the, the role in the tech industry, uh, that, that also got Taiwan a lot of positive news coverage throughout the year. But yeah, uh, typical for Taiwan, right? For every positive global news story, there's there's the the somewhat goofy one, right? Like the sushi thing making global global headlines or, or the ship, oh, the Taiwan ship uh, making global headlines. And uh, that's something Taiwan has has struggled with, I think, for a long, long time to to make sure that the positive outpaces the negative international news stories. And that's where we'll leave it here this week and this year, in fact, on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Happy New Year. And Ross Feingold. Also a Happy New Year. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. 
Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.